Jesus and death do battle in the graveyard. What is this book? What is it? Short answer would be the Bible. Thinking about it, most of us would answer, it is the written word of God. All of us, whether we believe it is the word of God or not, are forced to say it claims to be the word of God. Well, what happens? Is this, if, if this is the word of God, if this is the voice of God, what happens when God speaks into our world? That's just what this book does. Wherever we are, whatever we're doing, when we encounter the words of this book, we are hearing the voice of God in the world where we are, wherever we happen to be at that moment. Whether you know, in Israel, whether they were in Jerusalem, whether they were in Egypt, whether they were in Babylon, here came the prophet saying, Thus saith the Lord. They didn't say, Thus I say to you, Thus saith the Lord. It was the voice of God in their world. We've seen on two previous Sundays that the 11th chapter of John is first about Jesus' interaction, as the chapter opens, about Jesus' interaction with his disciples. And then his interaction with three people, two sisters and a brother who lived in Bethany. They were friends of Jesus. The sisters had sent him a message saying that his dear friend Lazarus was deathly ill. Now, all through John, we have seen in every chapter the claims of Jesus to deity. That he is the very word of God, the very voice of God. And this morning, that's how I want you to think about him, just the voice of God. So what was this voice of God doing in this story recorded by John in chapter 11? How did the voice of God respond to his friends in Bethany? First, he was doing what the voice of God always does. He was making claims. He was instructing his disciples and Martha and Mary. We'll call this the omniscience, as he instructs, as he teaches, as he makes these claims, we'll call this the omniscient, all-knowing voice of God. It's that voice of God that instructs his people. You know, since I was in college, I've had a short list, still have a list. It's not the same one I had in college most of People that were on that list are home in glory now. But that list, short list, were men and women that I held in high regard. They weren't omniscient. They didn't know, they didn't have God omniscient, but they had tremendous wisdom. And they knew God's word. 
And I would go to them and seek their wisdom, especially when I was in a hard time or making decisions. I sought them out. Sometimes I've flown across the country just to meet with someone and talk to them and say, what can you tell me? How can you help me? Martha had sent Jesus a note. That's what she was doing. It was really a prayer. She was seeking him. Now, you, if she wouldn't have said, I, I want his wisdom, not at that point. Her brother was dying. What did she say? She just said he's sick, knowing that Jesus would come and do what he did with every sick person. He would heal that person. So what did the voice of God? We already know the story. We've looked at it for on two previous occasions. What did the voice of God say? He didn't get there until after Lazarus had died. Go ahead, let's look at those verses for just a moment. In John eleven twenty one, Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Even now I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? What was the voice of God doing in Martha's world? He was instructing, teaching, making claims. He taught her that her brother would rise again. He taught her that he was the resurrection and the life. He taught her that whoever believed in him would never die. Making claims and instructing. That's what the omniscient voice of God does. All through scripture. We could spend the next month looking at these. 24 hours a day. It's all through scripture. Go to Moses' encounter the burning bush. You know about Moses and the burning bush? He was far away from Egypt. That was a past life. But there's this burning bush that won't burn up. And he stops and he goes to that bush. And God speaks to him in Exodus 3, 6. It's there on your scripture sheet. And he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face for he was afraid to look at God. Do you understand what God was doing at the burning bush in the wilderness with Moses? This was the voice of God speaking into Moses' world. How did he introduce himself? He made a claim. What was the claim? I am the God of your father. I'm the God of Abraham. I'm the God of Isaac. I'm the God of Jacob. When we pray in this room, thousands of years later, what do we sometimes say? It's, it's in several of our prayers. We pray, we know who you are, Lord. You're the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Where did we get that? Did we just get together and say, you know, this would be a good idea to, to pray this? 
We got it from the many times God made that claim in Scripture. We got it from the voice of God speaking into our world. The voice of God was teaching us who he was and who he is. After that, he instructed Moses. He made a claim, then he instructed Moses. Go back to Egypt. Lead my people out of slavery, out of Egypt, to the land that I promised Abraham. We've seen it over and over again in John's Gospel. That Jesus claimed to be that voice. He claimed to be the voice of deity. We couldn't get around it. We pointed in every chapter to this truth. He makes claims in, in structure. Remember what he said? I'm the bread of life. And talked about what that meant. I'm the light of the world. I'm the resurrection. He makes the claims. And then he instructs. I mean, here's a man, and he's the voice of God. In Matthew 5, 21, look at that on your scripture sheet. I just picked out a place at random in his providence. You have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who's angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council, and whoever says you fool will be liable to the hellfire. So if you're offering your gift at the altar, and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. Be reconciled to your brother, and then come and offer your gift. You know what? This is the Sermon on the Mount, isn't it? Jesus is off on the mountain praying. The voice of God, the omniscient voice of God, was speaking. And he quoted the voice of God in the Old Testament. He says, you have heard it was said, you shall not murder. Jesus was quoting what God told Israel at Sinai. But Jesus put himself on the same level of God by saying, you have heard, you shall not murder. But I say to you. He didn't say, well, let me explain what God was saying there. No. He said, but I say to you. This is another claim to deity. We usually walk right past it and don't see it. He's explaining in depth the teaching that God had given Israel. When you hate a man in your heart, it's the same as murder. The voice of God was giving instruction. I love that about Scripture, about God's Word. It's the voice of God instructing us, instructing me about who I am and who He is, instructing us about the world around us. It was in this, it was in this Word, it was from the voice of God that I first learned that I was a sinner. That I first learned that God had come in the flesh. Whatever you know about God, about Jesus, about salvation? Where's that come from? Did you just assimilate it out of the atmosphere? No. It came from the voice of God speaking into our 
world. Now, sometimes we don't like this. In a Thursday morning Bible study recently, Blake made the observation that we do not like anyone telling us how we should live our lives. Parents that have teenagers, you know. They don't like you telling them how to live their lives. It's not just teenagers. They're like that at two years old. They don't want you to tell them. Husbands don't like wives telling them what to do. Wives don't like husbands telling them what to do. We don't even like our friends telling us how to live. Why? We want to be autonomous. This is my life. Thank you very much. That's always been our problem with God's word. It's a voice of God instructing us about how we should live. Many of us here this morning would say, I believe in God. Maybe all of us would say, I believe in God. But we still don't want him to tell us how to live. I knew that because I feel that way. In our world today, we are apt to say his word is antique. His word is irrelevant. Or everyone's doing this over here. The trouble is that men and women were saying that about the voice of God 3,000 years ago. Go all the way back to Eden. Satan says to Eve, hath God said Eve? Eve has Hath God said, really? Are you going to let God tell you what you can and cannot do? So our first point this morning is that the voice of God teaches us by making claims and telling us how to live our lives. And you say to me, well, John, I know that. Why am I belaboring this point? Because as we have already said, that's what God was doing with Martha. He instructed and comforted her after her brother died, reminding her of the resurrection. And then he made an audacious claim. Look at, let's look at it again in verse 25 of chapter 11. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Now, we spent our entire time two weeks ago understanding three ways that Jesus is the resurrection. We won't do that. But we'll only say that this was on par, this was on the level with God saying, I'm the creator. Here's a man standing there, talk to her, he says, Martha, I am the resurrection. I am the life. And he wasn't saying, I believe in the resurrection. He wasn't saying, you're right in believing in the resurrection. He says, I'm the source of it. I'm the source of life. Then he teaches her what that means to us and to her and to us. We'll never die. We may die physically, but the moment that happens, he raises us to glory to be with him. He closes his teaching by asking her a penetrating question. And this is why he teaches. This is why he instructs us. 
He says, Martha, look at that. It's, it's beautiful. Martha, do you believe this? That's really what's happening here this morning, isn't it? You're asking yourself right now. Do I believe this? Now, don't be quick and give a Sunday school answer. Don't say to me, oh, John, you know me. You know I believe this. Is this your faith? Have you bowed the knee to the voice of life? Have you bowed your knee to Jesus? Have you said yes, Jesus? Have you? Yes, Jesus. I believe you're the Son of God come from glory. I believe you died on that cross for my sin. I believe that's my only hope. And I love you. Is that what you've said? I don't say it too quickly. As there's a second question... That proves whether you're telling the truth or not. Let me ask you a question. Does your work, does your daily life at home, does your daily life with your family, does your daily life at work, does your daily life at play look like a life that is following the directions of the voice of God? Does it? And you say, well, Sartell is really asking some tough questions. No, I'm not asking the question. Jesus is. And I know it because he asked them of me all week. And if I lived with it all week, you're going to live with it this morning. So what does Jesus do immediately after making this claim, this incredible teaching to Martha? At this point, we come to another, a second characteristic of the voice of God. Now, just so if you're taking notes, some of you come and, You've missed this because I didn't say, all right, here's point one. But the first aspect of the voice of God speaks, is that the voice of God speaks omniscient truth into our lives, instructing and making claims. That's why we go to him for wisdom, just like we go to uh, these short list of advisors. We go to God. What a blessing to have, you know, my, my short list never had anyone on it that was omniscient. They didn't claim to be. They were really wise. But I do know an omniscient person to whom I can go. All right, that was the first one. The second aspect, and this is where it really gets good. If you've been asleep, wake up. Because you've heard this other in the past. You hadn't heard this. This second aspect is that the voice of God commands with omnipotent Power. He goes to the grave of Lazarus. He has a stone removed. That would have been a stone that sealed either a natural cave or a room that had been carved out of a rock. It, it, it sealed it. Maybe there were several, as the scholars say, that uh, it was prevalent at that time for, for to have a, a cave like that and have several niches. For and, and have a, a family burial place. Well, he says a stone to be moved, and Martha, being the person she was, you know her, she, she said, don't do that, Jesus. He's been dead four days. This is embarrassing. 
He's been dead four days. The, the ESV, I love this. The ESV says, says there'll be an odor. That's not what the Greek says. I mean, that's, that's making it for us polite people. She really said, the Greek word says, he stinketh. There's a stench. Well, he didn't answer that. Martha said, he turned to Martha and said, Martha, I just gave you from my omniscient knowledge and wisdom, I just gave you instruction. I told you, if you believed, you would see the glory of God. What happened next? Well, the disciples were there. We know that because they went with him to Bethany. That means the apostle John was there. He not only records what Jesus said, but he records how he said it. Look at it. He cried with a loud voice. Now I want to ask you a question. Have you ever seen anyone stand next to a tomb or next to a sepulcher and talk and call the person's name, Fred, come out. I've never seen that in my life, even from people that are insane. I said, Jesus shouted with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. While a loud voice, this was the son of God. He could have whispered it and Lazarus would have come. He didn't need to raise his voice. No. While the loud voice, this was a command of the Almighty. The loud voice denoted authority, denoted command. Read the book of Revelation over and over and over again. It says he spoke with a loud voice, and it's always a command. And it's usually a command of an omnipotent voice. The voice of Jesus is not making a claim here. The voice of Jesus is not teasing. Lazarus come forth. He wasn't making a claim. The voice of God was not teaching here. He wasn't instructing. The voice of Jesus, the voice, the omnipotent voice of God, is commanding an inanimate body to live. This command does not depend on Lazarus doing anything. It does not depend on Lazarus exercising any faith. It does not depend on Lazarus somehow willing himself to live again. It only depends on the power of the speaker. It was the command of the omnipotent voice. Lazarus had no choice in the matter. He had to live. It was like the voice of God in the first chapter of Genesis. Let there be light. And there was light. There had to be. Because God's omnipotent voice had ordered it. When God is speaking, making claims, and teaching in Scripture, instructing His omniscient voice, people have an option. They can walk away. They can disbelieve. They can believe. They can obey. They can disobey. Look at Pilate. Look at Herod. Look at the Sanhedrin. They're all examples of that. They heard the very voice of an omniscient God. Over and over again. And what did they do? They crucified him. 
God in His patience and plan allowed men to do the unthinkable. But when Jesus speaks with this omnipotent voice of command, there are no options. Animate and inanimate in His creation must conform to His command. What happened in the graveyard in Bethany? When mighty death was confronted by Jesus, what happened there? What happened when Jesus shouted with his omnipotent voice, Lazarus, come out of the tomb. The voice of the Almighty was not teaching people how to live. He was the Lord of the universe commanding that universe. And death, death has nothing to say. Let me ask you a question. What could have kept Lazarus from coming out of that tomb? What? Name it. Nothing. Because there's no voice more powerful in the universe than the voice of Jesus. None. Now this was a microcosm. This was a microcosm of what will happen when Jesus returns. We read it this morning. Look at 1 Thessalonians 4, 13. But we don't want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who fall asleep, that you may not grieve as others who have no hope. For this we believe, that Jesus died and rose again, and even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep, those who have been raised to glory, God will bring back with him. For this we declare to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. Verse 16. Here it is. Look at it. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with what? A cry of command. What, what did it say at Lazarus' tomb? What did John say? He cried with a loud voice. That's what this, that's what this passage is saying. With the voice of the archangel and with the sound of the trumpet of God, the dead in Christ will rise first. This scene at Bethany will be repeated on a much larger scale, a worldwide world, a worldwide scale. Jesus will enter those graveyards the world over. The Lord Himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command. Don't ask me after this. Ask me what with the voice of the archangel. Don't ask me what that means. I don't know. And I've looked at it a long time. And I've read a lot of people that think they know. And they don't. So don't ask me. Rather focus on with a loud, with a cry of command. That is the omnipotent voice without equal that commands the universe. And every human being that's ever lived at that time will conform to what that voice demands. C.S. Lewis spoke of that moment in his powerful work, Mere Christianity. If you're here asking questions this morning, uh, you consider yourself an intellectual, and you're really asking sincere questions, you want sincere answers, you ought to read Mere Christianity by C.S. Lewis. It's one of the great, great works on Christianity in the 20th century. In that powerful work, Lewis wrote about this, this exact moment when Jesus returns. And this is what he wrote. Listen to me. God will invade. Now, this is C.S. Lewis. God will invade 
But I wonder whether people who ask God to interfere openly and directly in our world quite realize what it will be like when he does. When that happens, it's the end of the world. When the author walks on the stage, the play is over. God is going to invade all right. But what is the good of saying you're on his side then? When you see the whole natural universe melting away like a dream and something else, something that never entered your head to conceive, come crashing in. Something so beautiful to some of us and so terrible to others that none of us will have any choice left. For this time, it will be God without disguise. Something so overwhelming that it will strike either irresistible love or irresistible horror into every creature. Now listen, this is Lewis. It will be too late then to choose your side. There's no use saying you choose to lie down when it becomes impossible to stand up. That will not be the time for choosing. It will be the time when we discover which side we have really chosen, whether we've realized it before or not. Now today, this moment is our chance to choose the right side. God is holding back to give us that chance. It will not last forever. We must take it or leave it. End quote. What was he writing about? He was writing about the omnipotent voice of God. Not instructing, not teaching, commanding. You know, there's going to be people that they don't want that voice to raise them up. They don't. It says so in Revelation. In Revelation 6, 14. This is the last scripture we'll read. We're right at the end. But we've got to read this. Revelation 6, 14. The sky vanished like a scroll that's being rolled up and every mountain and island was removed from its place. Then the kings of the earth and the great ones, and the generals, and the rich, and the powerful, and everyone, slave and free, hid themselves in caves and among the rocks of the mountains, calling on the mountains and rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne, and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come, and who can stand? What John was seeing in the sixth chapter of Revelation what was John seeing in the sixth chapter? He was seeing what would happen when Jesus returns with that shouting, omnipotent voice. Some will hate this resurrection. They want to hide from the seated, from the one seated on the throne. But his voice has commanded their presence. And what are the last four words? Who can stand? No one. Who can resist? No one. Who can refuse to participate? No one. They don't have that option anymore. This is what Jesus had in mind, folks. You see how huge it is? This is what Jesus had in mind when he said, I am the resurrection. I'll be the resurrection when I go and raise Lazarus from his tomb. I'll be the resurrection on that great day. This whole scene in Bethany was pointing to the resurrection at the end of history. He was warning all of us, this is coming. It will happen. Everyone in this room has heard the omniscient voice of God, the all-knowing voice of God that claims and instructs. We've heard the omniscient voice of Jesus instructing, making claims. We've heard the omniscient truth proclaimed to us by the Holy Spirit. 
None of us, not a person, no matter how young you are, no matter how old you are, not a person in this room can say, I haven't heard that voice. You've heard it. You've heard it. We all have. One day, next week, one day next week, or maybe 100 years from now, maybe 500 years from now, we will hear the voice of God, and it will not be the omniscient voice of instruction and teaching. It will be the voice of omnipotent command. Command to appear before him for an accounting. There will be no bail arrangement. You will have no choice but to appear. Some will run to that voice with incredible joy. They can stand before God saying, I plead the blood of Jesus Christ, my Savior. That's why we come to this table this morning. If you have sat there this morning and you know you know Christ, don't you fear that day. You'll run. You can't help it. You'll run to that voice with the greatest joy you've ever known. Others will want to flee with all their might. But there'll be no fleeing. Not on that day. Our hymn is a 